0: Plus, get $20 off your first order.
1: Hey, do you have trouble sleeping? Then maybe you should check out the Sleepy Podcast. It's a show where I read old books in the public domain to help you get to sleep. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of... Classic stories like A Tale of Two Cities, Pride and Prejudice, Winnie the Pooh. Stories that are great for adults and kids alike. For years now, Sleepy has helped millions of people catch some much-needed Z's, start their next day off fresh, and discover old books that they didn't know they loved. So, whether you have a tough time snoozing, or you just like a good bedtime story, fluff up the cool side of your pillow and tune into Sleepy. Unless you're driving, then please don't listen to Sleepy. Find Sleepy on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes each week. Sweet dreams.
0: Roberto Calvi is on the run. It's June 10th, 1982, a year after Calvi's bombshell trial for banking fraud. One had exposed not only his dirty dealings, but that of a secretive Masonic sect named Propaganda Due, or P2. Then Calvi tried to kill himself, but he failed. A year later, all kinds of revelations are tumbling out about P2, about its leader, a notorious fascist once pals with Hermann Goering, its involvement with violent mobsters, links to Italy's military, its politicians, and the Vatican City, to whom Calvi has formed such a close bond and with whose finances that of his own Banco Ambrosiano is so intertwined that people simply refer to him as the Bantieri de Dio, God's banker. Calvi's conviction added him a $20 million fine and a four-year suspended prison term. An appeal looms. But God's banker is convinced he's being chased by a bevy of devils. He bumps up security, hiring goons and kitting his car out with bulletproof windows. He ships his family out of the country. And on that June 10, in 1982, which is a Thursday, he disappears from his Rome apartment, telling nobody his destination save for a shady clique of businessmen a feared human trafficker who will act as his bodyguard. First, Calvi drives to Austria, then Switzerland. Then, using a fake passport, the banker flies to London, where his associates put him up in a crummy apartment block in the city's fashionable Chelsea district. There, in a drab, colourless room, Calvi spends almost a week, with little but his bodyguard's phone number and attaché case he never lets out of his sight. Rumour has it that the case is crammed full of documents and names of P2 members and the Vatican prelates who helped Calvi rip off his bank to the tune of over a billion dollars. It's his insurance. But the policy's about to be torn up. On June 17, around 11.30pm, Calvi shaves off his iconic bushy moustache and heads out into London night. A few hours later, His lifeless body is discovered swinging from a scaffold beneath the city's Blackfriars Bridge, four miles east. Calvi's pockets are filled with chunks of bricks, and he's carrying over 10,000 bucks in foreign change. Around the same time, Calvi's newfound clique flee the UK. That evening, a private plane takes off from London to Geneva, carrying an attaché case. At first, London cops rule Calvi's death a suicide. But that won't last long. The killing of God's banker will send shockwaves through the worlds of high finance, organised crime and religion, taking in not only the demise of the banker Ambrosiano and the unmasking of P2, but also the deaths of a prime minister and a pope, the rise of Italy's mafia, terror strikes, right-wing despots and a Vatican archbishop they call the guerrilla. Welcome to the Underworld Podcast. Hello everyone and welcome to the show where we tread the fine tightrope line between respected journalism and wackadoo subreddits. I'm your host Sean Williams. I'm in Berlin. I'm joined by fellow investigative reporter Danny Gold in New York City. We write about crime all over the world and that's why you're listening to this. We've got Bonus shows coming up on Porn, Biker Gangs, The Zetas, and Fake Sports League. And hopefully a bit of a facelift pretty soon, so tons going on as usual. Yeah,
2: as always, patreon.com slash theunderworldpodcast to support us and bonus stuff and all that. And you can always email us at theunderworldpodcast at gmail.com. You know, with uh, nice constructive criticism or just suggestions for episodes and everything like that.
0: Yeah, and speaking of which, uh, I want to do a quick correction. In my last episode about Putin who's neo-Nazi spy on Zontag, I think I mentioned that Putin wound up uh, mayor of St. Petersburg, not the saint of Mayor Petersburg, which is not true. Um, he worked in a bunch of positions in the city office as part of his rise to power, but he was never actually mayor. So I, I think like a couple of people spotted that. So cheers to you guys. I love, 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 love being corrected. <laughs> um i could actually enjoy our last show without me in it it was really it was really great yeah
2: jake uh jake henrahan from popular front filled in you were definitely missed but uh you know you know how it is also please subscribe like right five star review all that sort of stuff to help us out yeah yeah. anyway yeah let's get it going
0: (laughs) yeah i mean so this episode is about roberto calvi who's god's banker and crime and the vatican and if you watch The Godfather Part 3, which I'm guessing just about everyone listening to this show has, uh, you're going to recognize a lot of this as the plot of that movie.
2: Yeah, I think at least the first and the second one multiple times. I don't think everyone's really dived into the third one, right?
0: Wait, what, what, was, the yeah, got, the, uh, what was the one that got terrible reviews? I think reviews? the third is one and out, right? It's not that. It's not like, not
2: the third was the one that got really bad reviews? The, se- the third, right? Yeah.
0: Yeah, it kind of sucked. Yeah. Except for the ending. I went back through it and... Uh, I don't know. Al Pacino is just a god, but yeah, this this whole thing actually starts way back before that show, that movie, or any of this. So it's back in 1929, and that's when the Vatican City itself is actually turned into an independent state by, yeah, you guessed it, Italian fascist leader Benito Mussolini. So in turn for the Pope's fealty and his land, Mussolini throws a bunch of money at the Catholic Church. And it gives it this tiny itty bitty little city state to call its own right in the middle of Rome on something called the Vatican Hill. So um, before we kick off some Vatican facts, of course, this place is the smallest country on Earth. It's 0.2 square miles total or about the same size as Manhattan's Battery Park. That means that running it is record time. I'm sorry for butchering these kind of like journalistic metaphors, but I love them. Usain Bolt could run the entire length of it in around a minute and a half. It also has the most crimes per capita thanks to its tourism and an ATM that works in Latin. I mean, all right, fine. It's only officially home to 825 people, all of them male, surprisingly. And because there's no hospital and, more importantly, no place to deliver a baby, you cannot be born a citizen of the Vatican City. You've got to work for something called the Holy See, which is what it goes by at the UN. The Holy See is the name for the diocese of the big man, the Pope, but it's also kind of a company that owns the Vatican, of which the Pope is CEO. Oh, and he's the king too, which makes the Vatican one of only six remaining absolute monarchies remaining on earth. Well, actually, he's the elected Pope, the king, and the CEO rolled into one, all of which means that technically... The Vatican City is the world's only elected, non-hereditary, absolute monarchy, all and none of which makes sense all at the same time.
2: Thank you very much, Wikipedia Williams over here.
0: Thank you. Yeah, yeah, I, I really enjoyed that part. I mean, you should be confused. I am too. And yes, before we dive into this whole story about crime and murder and all that kind of Crazy stuff. Yes, there are tunnels under the Vatican leading out to the Castel San Angelo in Rome, where at least a couple of popes have fled since the twelve hundreds. It's a it's a tough gig going round in that hat. And then you have the Swiss Guard, highly trained marksmen dressed like jesters. I mean, you really gotta wonder how Europeans allow themselves to <laughs> laugh at, at stuff going on in America. <laughs> like you really don't need Tim Four hat conspiracies when all this stuff is a hundred percent kosher. Anyway. In 1942, a few years after it's christened, I guess, or baptised, the Vatican starts something called the Institute of Religious Works, or IOR in Italian. This financial organisation squirrelled away at the top of one of the state's ancient towers. But by around 1970, despite literally dripping in gold and getting donations for over a billion people, yeah, it's the Catholic Church, guys, the Vatican is turning over a loss of up to 30 mil a year and it's looking to turn some of its assets that cash daddy mussolini gave it for example into liquid assets that it can trade and make cash on
2: what like how are they losing money this is before the lawsuits or is that part of it <laughs> which
0: which ones uh you know the uh the the not so pleasant the ones, ones. The, the, yeah the ones that we all associate This is before that, and I don't even understand how the Catholic Church can be losing money. I I really don't get it. I don't know. They're just not very good at uh, financial stuff. And post-war, right? So at this point, no country is better at trading than the US. And just as luck may have it, on Saturday, November the 28th, in Manila, a 35-year-old Bolivian artist named Benjamin Mendoza, he lunges at 73-year-old Pope Paul VI with a knife. Now, I say luck because, one, then Philippine dictator Ferdinand Marcos is able to get between the assailant and the Pope and, according to a New York Times report, quote, struck Mendoza with a karate chop. That is... Is there video of this? Like, I did not know... There is not. And you better fucking know that I look for it, yeah. Yeah, I want to see that more than anything in the entire world. I know, I know. Marcos... Chopping a guy on the just shot, karate. Just is so cool.
2: Did he yell out "Karate <laughs> Chop"
0: before he did it? Which is like "Karate Chop." I really, hope. Really yeah, are. me too. And and that's not actually the only incredible thing about this. Well, maybe it is. Anyway, among the entourage who saved the Pope's life is this hulking, golf-loving American Archbishop named Paul Marcinkus. And Marcinkus is this towering guy from Cicero, Illinois. That's a place just outside Chicago. He's a straight talker, the son of Lithuanian immigrants, and he's imbued with that enthusiastic post-war American capitalist zeal. I think Cicero is also like a big mafia town and labor union town and all that. Like it's,
2: I believe the reputation is like a tough place.
0: Yeah, it's like a, it's like an old factory place, right? So I've I've heard a couple of bits and pieces. And um, as we're going to learn, he's, he's, he's a boy of his town. I mean, fellow bishops call him the gorilla. One of his favorite phrases is, and this is great: "quote You can't run the church on Hail Marys." Which okay, I mean, I, I, I mean, I guess God's got something to say about all this, but yeah, I don't know. Marsinkus quickly wins the Pope's trust, and he becomes one of his closest confidants. By 1971, that's just the year after he's saved his life. Paul the Sixth appoints Marcinkus as head of the IOR, which, by the way, most people just call the Vatican Bank. And he tells him to go out and invest the church's money on the international markets. So Marcinkus installs IBM machines and modern bookkeeping, He introduces this kind of whole modern world to the Vatican Bank. But despite his go-getting, do-it-yourself attitude, Marcinkus turns for help actually to an Italian banker called Michele Sintona, who's nicknamed The Shark, who, to be honest, could be a whole episode just by himself. It's pretty crazy writes journalist David Yallop in his book In God's Name, quote, Sindona, who had manoeuvred his way to becoming owner of one of the biggest Italian merchant banks, apparently convinced the financially untutored Marsinkas, it was high time the Vatican began to enjoy the fruits of its huge assets. You know, no shock there. But that turns out not to be such a great idea. Sindona is a crook and a pretty big one at that. He's connected to mafia bosses and he's a member of this secret Masonic society called Propaganda Due, or P2, which is an anti-communist, far-right, quote, state within a state with tentacles in the highest rooms of Italian power. Is that propaganda? P2 is propaganda duo, yeah? Is that how you say it? Uh, du- du- due? My anyway. Italian's a bit out, Yeah,
2: yeah I, yeah. I remember wanting to do an episode on that when I first learned about it a while back,
0: but... uh do you get it? Like, is this a big part of it right here? It is, yeah. And they're, they're, they're linked to everything. I mean, it's pretty insane. I've never really heard of another organization like this. And no wonder people are always full of conspiracies about Italian stuff. Because, I mean, P2's chief is this guy called Lizio or Gelly, I think it's Gelli. I'm really sorry if your name's not Gelli. Um, he's a fascist and he's once pen pals with Nazi leader Hermann Goering. And he allegedly has ties with right-wing dictators all over Latin America, including Argentina's Juan Perón, which is, you know, not ideal, either then or in hindsight. In 1972, Sindona buys Long Island's Franklin National Bank, but a series of frauds brings it down. And in 1974, Sindona's financial empire collapses and it costs Marcinkas and the Vatican Bank millions. It's... It's a huge scandal, it's a massive scandal and it's hugely embarrassing for the Catholic Church but, you know, Marcinkus is in with the big boy so he stays on. Now, bear in mind that this entire era is absolutely insane for Italy. It's the so-called years of lead filled with hard left and hard right terror campaigns, targeted killing, political turmoil, high unemployment and, of course, crime and amid all this chaos, organised criminal outfits they reign supreme. They traffic huge quantities of drugs. They take over ports and construction projects. I think we, we got into this with our episode on the maxi trial in Sicily, but the island itself is probably the worst hit of anywhere in the country. And in these entire bland concrete blocks shooting up on the edge of its biggest city, Palermo, which locals call it the city's, quote, sack. And I, I, I quote again, the word sack was not randomly chosen to describe that period, says Maurizio Carta, professor of urban planning at Palermo University. Like plundering barbarians, mafiosi devastated the city with cement, disfiguring its parks, landscape, and natural beauty. It's a good quote, especially from an architect. Not many of them get in this show. (laughs) So this is all insane, right? Italy is in the thrall of mobsters, secret fascist societies, banking fraudsters, and people being killed left, right, and centre, and even the Vatican's getting ripped off.
2: The 70s in Europe were just completely insane, huh?
0: Yeah, I, I I, don't know why we seem to think that the world's somehow normal now. I mean, this is only a few years ago. And Paul Marcinkas, right? The gorilla, the guy from Cicero, he just gets right back on the horse after all this thing to mix metaphors, or, I don't know, perhaps gorillas can ride horses, I don't know. And so... To do so, he reaches out to a guy called Roberto Calvi. Now, born to a wealthy Milan family in 1920, Calvi joins the Banco Ambrosiano, which is a small, homespun outfit just after the Second World War. By the 1970s, when Calvi has r- risen to become its chief, the bank has followed a similar, p- similar path to the Vatican Bank. So it's a modern firm, it's got branches all over the world, and it's grown at an alarming rate that few outside the bank can really fathom, or inside, Calvi himself is described as incredibly cold with, quote, eyes of ice. He's also a member of P2, because of course he is, and he's a close associate of some of Italy's biggest gangsters of the time. Obviously, therefore, Marcinkus loves him, and he designates Calvi and the banker Ambrosiano to kind of internationalise the Vatican's assets. And this is how he does it. Calvi sets up a firm called Banco Ambrosiano Holdings in Luxembourg. Standard, shifty operation, 5 out of 10 on the the fraud scale. This allows him to move money from the Vatican outside Italy without actually touching Italian financial law. Then Calvi establishes something called the Banco Ortano in Switzerland. Secrecy secured, again, nothing spectacular. Another 5 out of 10 on the banking shithousery scale. And then he founds Bank Ambrosiano Overseas Limited in the Bahamas. All right, cool. Seven out of 10 move, great beaches, holiday potential for work trips. I mean, it's not the Cayman Islands, slightly off the beaten track, but all the corrupt officials and tax loopholes that anyone could ever want.
2: I'm always curious how these people figure all this out. Like, it seems incredibly complex, but is it just moving money around, you know, back and forth until people
0: lose sight of it? Yeah, you just describing why we're not rich? Or (laughs) is this... I think, yeah, I mean, these guys are just... I I don't know, they're shits, but it's it's pretty pretty intelligent stuff. So at this point, Calvi throws a curveball and he sets up something called the Banco Comercial in Nicaragua and itself is under the violent yoke of a CIA-backed right-wing contra rebel group. Eight out of ten, shielding yourself under fascists in the civil war. Yeah, that's a, that's a different move. And then Calvia goes to uh, Peru and he found something called the Banco Andino. A out of 10 move again, good. Throwing law enforcement off the scent, more corrupt South American officials, more cold war, more insurgencies. And then he opens like a dozen shell corporations in politically tumultuous Panama. That's about to be taken over and run by drug kingpin Manuel Noriega, it's popped up in a ton of our shows. We should probably just do a whole episode about him. These function pretty much just as mailboxes. So they keep paper trails away from the actual cash. Marcinkas, by the way, is a director at the bank's Nassau branch. Very rare for an ar- archbishop, plus, quote unquote, working in <laughs> the Bahamas. Very nice. Nine out of 10. Calvi, as a final little sort of cherry on top, is working on a no- multi million dollar building project in Buenos Aires. Invest in real estate. Like, that is, I mean, whatever the Instagram thing is, that is the ultimate, like, that's the ultimate lesson. So, to put all this stuff simply, Calvi is lending Ambrosiano Cash to its own Central and South American subsidiaries. And Marcinkus is giving Calvi these funny things called Letters of Comfort from the Vatican Bank, and that's a letter basically saying that in vague wording, the Vatican has interest in these companies and it's aware what Ambrosiano is doing with the funds. If this sounds a bit like the tail wagging a dog, it totally is. And Ambrosiano, under Calvi, with the consent of Marsinkas to use Vatican Bank funds, is creating a black hole right now around $1.4 billion deep. That is a lot of money. Calvi by moving all this money around and buying shares in various subsidiaries is putting himself in control of the entire thing.
2: What if I told you that there was someone out there who kept a log of every single thing you did every minute of the day? I think that's a pretty creepy thing. But what if I told you that's exactly what's happening every time you go online? Your internet provider like AT&T or Verizon They're allowed to store logs of every website you've ever visited. Every website. And can legally sell this data to anyone. That's why I always use ExpressVPN. ExpressVPN reroutes your internet connection through their secure servers so your internet provider can't see or log what you do online. And unlike a lot of other VPNs, they don't store any of that data. They use something called Trusted Server Technology, they were the first major VPN provider to engineer all of their VPN servers to run on RAM only, which makes it impossible for them to store any data, including logs of any ExpressVPN customer. So for me, when I'm doing research for an episode, you know, we're looking into really shady stuff. It's kind of better that uh, that we're not storing that data that no one can see that. And I know for Sean in his personal life, he's uh, you know, he's visiting certain certain streaming websites and other websites that. You know, he wouldn't like other people to know that he goes on. So both of us, we use ExpressVPN to keep what we want to keep private, private and secure. Stop letting people keep logs of what you do online. Visit expressvpn.com underworld right now and find out how you can get three months free. That's com slash underworld expressvpn.com slash underworld to learn more.
1: The information that I am providing today is coming from higher dimensional consciousnesses. Things got so weird during 2020, and it wasn't just the QAnon conspiracy theorists. This new age channel told us... Donald
2: Trump is a massive... And powerful worker, A
1: lightworker. And then what about this Oprah-endorsed, best-selling feminist health icon talking about heavy metals? That
2: are in vaccines that make our bodies literally into an antenna with 5G.
1: As we continued studying what we now call conspirituality, it only got more intense.
2: This is, this is the cult of Baphomet. This is Molochite worshipping Stuff It gets very gory in the basement.
1: And it culminated with that shaman dude showing up at the Capitol insurrection. But it didn't stop there. Every week on Conspirituality Podcast, we track the overlaps between New Age spirituality and far-right conspiracy cults.
0: Now, on March 16, 1978, the years of lead take another sharp turn for the batshit when far-left terrorists kill five policemen in Rome, kidnap Italian Prime Minister Aldo Moro, and 55 days later, murder him, leaving him in the trunk of a Renault in the city centre. Despite it being the work of a group called the Red Brigades, obviously left, many believe P2 is also behind it. So yeah,
2: I think our friend of the show, Alexander Reed Ross, is doing a big podcast on the years of lead he actually had me guess on one of them about the the mafia involvement in it but was was p2 cool. a known thing at this time like you're saying they believe they were behind it or is that you know 10 years down the road people believe that that p2 was behind it
0: so this is this is interesting that i couldn't quite figure it out so like it seems that people started figuring out that p2 existed shortly after this um, as we're going to find out, Calvi plays a key role in the whole unearthing of the whole thing. But whether, people are definitely talking about it as something in the shadows at this point. But whether they know that it's involved in some of these high profile attacks or kidnappings or things at the time, I'm not entirely sure. I'd welcome anyone to email us actually and tell us a little more about this stuff. Maybe people who can actually read Italian and can read the local stuff. But also, it's, it's super crazy. Did you come up with the nickname P2 or did people actually call it that? Uh, people called it that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. But, okay. I don't know. Maybe they didn't. But P2 works, right? That'll do for now. Um. So on August 6th, 1978, Pope Paul the sixth he dies of a heart attack and he's replaced by Pope John Paul the I, born Albino Luciani. So just to get that straight, that's the guy who Marcinka's saved from a stabbing in manila he's dead there's a new guy in office uh, the white smoke coming out of the chimney in the vatican or whatever they do when they do that stuff now john paul i is a pretty cheerful guy and folks nickname him il papa del sorriso or the smiling pope which is no it's pretty nice but underneath the grin john paul is a committed reformer he wants to lead a charge against opulence, which is, like, the biggest flex ever for the actual fucking Pope. And he's begun digging into the Vatican Bank's financial affairs, Michele Sindona, who, by this point, is on trial for ordering the hit and is faking his own suicide, Jesus. Paul Marcinkus, and, of course, Roberto Calvi, and his own growing empire with the Banco Ambrosiano, all of which is about as cloudy as a week-old bottle of communion wine. Um, That's a lot of people. Is this... Is this making sense?
2: I mean, sort of. You know, I think we're all along for the ride, though. You know, I'm sure I'm sure it'll make sense. (laughs) I hope so.
0: Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah. Professional storytelling and all that (laughs) Um, here. So John Paul, the first reign lasts all of 33 days. Here is a Guardian article from September 30, 1978. Quote, when he did not appear yesterday morning in his private chapel for mass, one of his secretaries Father McGee, is an Irishman, if you could ever figure that out, went <laughs> to the Pope's bedroom door and knocked. There was no answer. Upon entering, he found the Pope lying in his bed with a book open beside him and the reading light on. Um, yeah, I mean, that's not very clear. He's dead. So we've got a dead Italian prime minister, a dead Pope and a corrupt Vatican at this point.
2: I'm going to go out on a limb here and say that there are going to be some conspiracy theories about this situation.
0: Uh, that limb, it's a, it's, a, it's a good limb. It's a fat limb. You should cling on to it because we're going to come back to it in a bit. Yeah. So the Mafia. Right. So <laughs> the Mafia, guys, that's why you're here. The Mafia running riot left... Right and center. And left and right terrorists are popping off all over the place, right? Italy is going crazy. And Italians themselves, they even coin a word around this time, which is dietrologia. I tried to say that in like some really hackneyed Italian accent. And that is a belief that hidden realities lie below the surface of the accepted version of events. A kind of national conspiratorialism, a Glenwaldianism, if you want. And Which you, when you can consider that P2 is yet to be kind of publicly unearthed, it kind of checks out, right? It makes sense that people would think this. Now, Jelly, the leader of P2, Propaganda Due, this secret society, he even gets Roberto Calvi to buy 40% of Italy's biggest newspaper, the Corriere della Sera, and he shifts its editorial to the right. So he's this kind of like Murdoch figure in italy at the time and british intelligence officials start monitoring roberto calvi and ambrosiano believing that they're funneling money and arms to the argentine fascists in the war over the falkland islands which is you know fascists and falklands pot kettle anyway there is tons of stuff about the catholic church and its silence on the mafia and fascism in the fight against so-called godless communists during the Cold War. And I'm not going to get into all that too much in this episode because, yeah, I mean, it's dense, obviously, and it steps pretty firmly into wackadoo territory. But it's fair to say that the church keeps them on a lot of crime and right-wing corruption in these times. And by this point, 1978, P2... As an entire blueprint for the overthrow and rule of Italy. God, this sounds so conspiracy theory podcast shit. It's totally checks out, including routing its communist party and trade unions and installing fascists in office, using the mafia as muscle and financial might to do so. And incidentally, one of P2's members is a youngish, oh, I mean, I don't know. He's like 150 now, Silvio Berlusconi. <laughs> in 1980, the years of lead reach their lowest point when a bomb goes off at Bologna's railway station and kills 85 people. The whole world reels. This is a huge terror attack. A year later, P2 is exposed just as Calvi's empire implodes. So this is how it goes down. First, the Vatican finds out about Calvi's shady dealings on the Milan Stock Exchange. Part of these deals is that Calvi has been moving cash out of Italy illegally by buying shares in companies and foreign banks. So Calvi is arrested and thrown in jail. And there, he attempts to take his own life by slashing his wrists and taking an OD of barbiturates. But he fails. A court sentenced him to a large fine, that $20 million, and four years in prison. But it releases him pending an appeal. Then... Comps find a document listing business deals between Jelly and Calvi, and this is dangerous information. And Jelly tries to call Calvi's home on several occasions. Wait, who
2: is who is Jelly again?
0: That's Licio Jelly. He's like the P two leader, this kind of crypto fascist, crazy backroom puppet master guy. So Calvi gets really suspicious. Oh, I mean, you would do. He installs alarms, he, hires, he gets barriers, he hires bodyguards, he fits out a bulletproof car, and he books po- bogus plane journeys wherever he travels to throw would-be P2 killers off his trail. And this, by the way, cost him a million bucks a year in like 1981. That's a lot of money. <laughs> but it's not enough. And by the spring of 1982, as Calvi's appeal looms, he sends his family out of the country, admitting That he was making his illegal stock deals for the benefit of the Vatican itself. Remember, that's with our American friend Marcinkus. At the same time, the hole in the Banco Ambrosiano's accounts is just getting bigger and bigger and bigger. All of Calvi's kind of South American shithousery is kind of coming back to eat the bank. There's no money in the coffers, and it's just like turning into a black hole of finance. But then there's suddenly a chance for Roberto Calvi to escape all of this. A New York based banker named Francisco Pazienza offers to buy 1.2 billion shares, uh, 1.2 billion of shares, sorry, in dollars in Banker Ambrosiano, plugging the hole in its finances.
2: Why is he just really bad at his job? Like, why would you
0: do that? Okay. So this is, this is where it gets weird. <laughs> I am, <laughs> I mean, the whole fucking thing is weird. Like, Pacienza, he, like, speaks to this PBS documentary team, which is, there's this, like, old grainy footage of him doing an interview in this uh, sort of, like, overly ornate English. He He's, like, supposedly got ties to the mafia and people who, do not want this whole thing to fall on its ass because they have various interests either in p2 or in dictatorships in south america or in the financial security of the vatican city i mean like why like seriously why do people make up conspiracy theories about the vatican this is this stuff is more than enough but i don't think i can stand it up <laughs> which is why i just told you in the podcast as I would have done in the podcast in the first place. (laughs) But either way, this guy has put up a ton of money and he says he's going to plug this hole in the Ambrosiano's finances. He introduced Calvi to a Sardinian real estate developer called Flavio Carboni, who Calvi meets on holiday in Sardinia itself. Then, while they're there, Carboni introduces Calvi to a Swiss businessman named Hans Kunst and a suspected human trafficker named Silvano Vitor, who is going to become Calvi's bodyguard. Remember him from the start of the show. So now we're back to the introduction, right? On Thursday, June 10th, Calvi disappears from his Rome apartment and he doesn't tell anyone where he's going. He drives first to Trieste, which is the city on the northeastern Adriatic coast, and then he drives to Austria. And then he goes to Switzerland and it's all with a fake passport and it's all with Silvani Vitor. That's the suspected human trafficker who's kind of acting as his bodyguard on the say so of these shady real estate developers and Swiss businessmen. I hope you're following this guys. (laughs) On the Friday, he calls the bank, that's Calvi, and tells them that despite he's not been able to tell them where he is, they should not worry and he will be back soon. That's totally reassuring. When they stop on the Friday night in a place called Bregenz in Austria, Calvi heads for a midnight meeting with Carboni and Hans Kuntz. Whatever they tell him, he ditches his plans to travel to Zurich, which he originally has, and he gets Vitor instead to drive into the nearest airport, which is Innsbruck, lovely place, really recommend it, where a private jet takes him to London. Calvi is reportedly cheerful at this point, but less so when Hans Kuntz, that's a Swiss businessman, Books him a week long stay, not a Claridges, that's the five star Mayfair hotel he's used to, but in room eight eighty one of something called the Chelsea Cloisters, which is a tumble-down block, partly used as a student hostel, which I looked up and I actually still use it and it looks like a shithole still. Anyway, on June fifteenth, that's just a couple days before Calvi's death, Flavio Carboni arrives in London. This guy is a multimillionaire, right? But he chooses to stay in a run down apartment block outside Heathrow Airport as the guest of a British man named William Morris, who, it's alleged is a Freemason. It's not alleged. He is a Freemason. That night, Calvi calls his daughter. She's staying at the time in a Zurich hotel. She was supposed to wait for him. The rest of the family is already in Washington, D.C., by the way. Calvi tells her to get a flight to the States the following day and says he'll call her again. He never does. Later on, Calvi's daughter is approached by a woman calling herself Mrs. Kunst, who hands her 50,000 Swiss francs with no explanation, adding that her husband Hans will be meeting Calvi in London the next day. Now, if this is all confusing, I guess it's supposed to be, because it's pretty weird. On the morning of June 16th, Calvi and Carboni, the real estate guy, they meet in Hyde Park in central London. Calvi complains about the standard of his hotel, of course, and Carboni asks him to come to the Hilton across town in London. Instead, he stays at the Chelsea Cloisters. He doesn't want to go to the Hilton. <laughs> then the Bank Ambrosiano board meets for an emergency <laughs> meeting in Milan where they're told about Calvi's disappearance and the missing billion and a half dollars. They decide, shock horror, to fire Calvi, who it's alleged is acting erratically in London. <laughs> Later that day, Calvi's personal secretary, Graziella Carrocher, jumps to her death, having written a letter attacking him. By the way, that has now all but been proven not to have been a suicide. I mean, none of this is a shock. Then, late on June 17, Calvi shaves off his iconic tash. He heads out into London night, and just hours later, he's found hanging, from Blackfriars Bridge. And that location, by the way, is not insignificant. P2 members reportedly call themselves the Blackfriars, the Fratineri, and they wear black robes to their secret meetings. Here's a PBS documentary host speaking, quote, To believe that he committed suicide, we must accept that he travelled over four miles to Blackfriars Bridge, and once there, found some scaffolding, which he could not see from the road. We must accept, too, that he happened to find several stray bricks which he then put into his pants and his pockets. I mean, we've all done that. We have to believe that somehow, past midnight, he found some convenient rope. And all this time, back in his room, he had enough sleeping pills to kill himself easily and painlessly. But perhaps that wouldn't have been so dramatic. Adds one journalist, quote, When Calvi died... I think several bottles of champagne were drunk all over Italy. Now, before Calvi's body in London has even been identified, Vitor, his people smuggler come bodyguard he flees London. And that evening, a private plane leaves London for Geneva. Calvi carries a taché case with him everywhere. It's found neither at the cloisters nor on his body. It's believed to contain documents showing his connections with P2, bankers and politicians and, of course, prelates of the Vatican. Journalists learn that the private plane is carrying that case. Carboni, the real estate guy who's brokered this entire mad trip across Europe, he leaves William Morris's apartment near Heathrow. But instead of going to Heathrow Airport, he drives across the city to Gatwick where he boards a flight to Edinburgh And he gets a connecting plane to Austria where he rejoins Vitor, the bodyguard.
2: I mean, I don't even know. Like, this is all insane, dude. Um, I'm, I'm, yeah, I don't know.
0: Yeah, nothing. It's kind of like hard to put into a story because nothing makes sense. But (laughs) I think that's the whole point that everything is so muddled up that it throws everyone off the scent to such an extent that like the cops just basically give up on the spot. Anyway, Calvi's death causes pandemonium at the Banco Ambrosiano. Branches are shut, officials fired. Writes the New York Times, quote, The financial panic caused by news of Mr. Calvi's death and the Bank of Italy's investigation provoked the collapse of his financial empire. Shares of companies his group had interest in fell 30 and 40% on the Milan Stock Exchange. After depositors rushed to withdraw their funds, Banco Ambrosiano itself had to be bailed out by a consortium of six major Italian banks hurriedly put together by the Bank of Italy. And it continues, In light of the rumours, officials at the normally stayed Bank of Italy and Finance Ministry expressed amazement at last week's finding by a London coroner that Mr. Calvi did indeed commit suicide by hanging himself under the bridge. The common reaction was, quote, Why bother to go to London to do that? I mean, like the gray London vibes, you know, it
2: kind of feels like
0: uh,
2: the most dramatic and, and theatrical way to, to off yourself.
0: Yeah, I, I think so. And I mean, I've been to Milan a, a couple of times and I, I don't want to piss too many people off, but yeah, land kind of sucks. Anyway, why? I mean, why indeed did he go to London? So London police first, of course, deemed Calvi's death of suicide. But years later, the case is blown wide open once more. Francesco quote Frankie the Strangler Di Carlo I mean that's a hell of a nickname (laughs) who's a mafia godfather had been living in London since the 1970s having been linked to the deaths of two Sicilian cops before he fled. In 1991 a supergrass which is a high level informant is that an American phrase that people call people supergrasses? No not at all. Okay yeah that's like a really British phrase. Anyway this high-level informant fingers Frankie the Strangler as Calvi's killer. In 2012, he speaks out about the murder from the small Sicilian town in which he lives in later life. Quote, I was in university. That's what I called the prisons in England. We were all in the association room watching television when the news came on that the killer of Calvi was Francesco Di Carlo. All the prisoners and guards looked over and stared. I just shrugged my shoulders and said that they must be talking about someone else as, with the same name as me. <laughs> I mean, no one said that, Frankie the Strangler, and no one looked over at you. But anyway, <laughs> DiCarlo is a long-time target of law enforcement in the UK and Italy. And in th- authorities actually link him to at least a dozen multi-million dollar drug hauls. In 1985, Paloma police tried extraditing him. Within weeks, two of the investigators in that case are shot dead is a Guardian story, quote, Although DiCarlo denies killing Calvi, he admits that he and his mafia colleagues wanted him dead and that his boss had attempted to contact him to carry out the hit. And then DiCarlo adds a little, quote, I was in Rome and received a phone call from a friend in Sicily telling me that a certain high-ranking mafia member had just been killed. I will never forget the date because of this. It was 16th of June, 1982, two days before Calvi was murdered. The friend told me that Pippo Kahlo, which is a very, very high-ranking mafia member known as the Mafia's cashier, was trying to get hold of me because he needed me to do something for him. In the hierarchy of Cosa Nostra, he was a general, I was a colonel, so he was a little higher up, my superior. He continues, when I finally spoke to Pippo, he told me not to worry the problem we've been taken care of that's a code we use in the cosa nostra we never talk about killing someone we say they've been taken care of very clever <laughs> and he goes on calvi was naming names no one had any trusted him anymore he owed a lot of money we know this mate his friends had all distanced him to themselves we know this too everyone wanted to get rid of him yep he had been arrested and he had started to talk. We know this. Then he had tried to kill himself by cutting his wrist. We know this too. Right, <laughs> like DiCarlo. He was released, but knew he could be rearrested at any time. He was weak. He was a broken man. I mean, yeah, all right. I was not the one who hanged Calvi, says DiCarlo. One day I may write the full story, but the real killers will never be brought to justice because they have been protected by the Italian state by members of the P2 Masonic Lodge. They have massive power. They are made up of a mixture of politicians, bank presidents, the military, top security, and so on. This is a case that they continue to open and close again and again, but it will never be resolved. The higher you go, the less evidence you will find. So, you know... This guy, he's a bit of a fantasist, it sounds, but he was in the same place. He's got some pretty authentic knowledge at the time. But what actually happened to Roberto Calvi? Was he murdered by a London mafiosi, members of P2, somebody else? Or did he actually take his own life? In 2005, UK cops officially reopened Calvi's case under the leadership of a Bronx-born journalist and investigator named Jeff Katz. Wait,
2: who is this guy? This is some. This is a Netflix-ass plotline, if I've ever heard one. Just like some dude from the Bronx, they were like, "Okay, you're in charge now."
0: Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> <laughs> there's there's like really little more to it than that. He likes investigating the Catholic Church, and he, he kind of got involved. And he's got he's got a good turn of quotes. So he says to the BBC, "When I started making inquiries through contacts in Italy, the answer came back that if we were to take this particular case on." It would be like dancing in the mouth of the wolf. I mean, yeah, I mean, five out of ten. In another article, Kat says that, quote, Roberto Calvi may have been God's banker, but he had supped with the devil. And I mean, come on, mate. Like, even I've done that in the intro to this podcast. (laughs) Investigators reassemble the scaffolding from which Calvi was found hanging, and they clamber all over it in pairs of Calvi's actual own shoes shipped in from Italy, and they find that such movement would have left rust on his soles, but there wasn't any at the scene. They also find that if the River Thames is at high tide, it would be really easy for somebody on a boat to place the body where it is discovered. Quote, For the 62-year-old Calvi to get to the scaffolding by himself, writes a fourth feature, he would have had to climb down the bridge from a ladder, jump a distance between the ladder and the scaffolding, all while weighted down by 12 pounds of bricks. So the London cops get so far that in 2005, they actually put five people on trial for Calvi's murder. That's that Sicilian monster people Carlo that DiCarlo just fingered in the quotes that I mentioned before. Two businessmen, Ernesto Diotavelli, don't know who he is, and Flavio Carboni, that's the real estate guy who helped him get out of the country. Carboni's ex-girlfriend, Manuela Kleinzig, You might recognise that name from The Godfather Part 3. And of course, Vitor, the bodyguard, human trafficker. We're not really sure. But in 2007, all five of them are acquitted. Although, in the same breath, the court decides that Calvi was, in fact, murdered. So, well done for the UK authorities. They've really pulled it out of the bag. Licio Gelli, the leader of P2, he lives a prosperous life. And he dies at his luxurious Arezzo Villa in 2015. He actually carries on his fascist campaign long into the 1990s, saying of former protege Silvio Berlusconi's then Italian premiership that, quote, he's implementing my plan for democratic rebirth to perfection. He should at least give me copyright. Yikes. In 1989, after a long period of near silence, the Vatican itself reaches a financial settlement with the Bank of Italy to recognize its, quote, moral responsibility in the Banco Ambrosiano crash. Paul Marcinkus, the guerrilla, he denies any wrongdoing, despite being indicted as a, quote, accessory to fraudulent bankruptcy by Italian authorities in 1987. The Vatican shields him from prosecution, literally, he literally just sits inside the wall of the Vatican, and he quiet, they quietly shift him away from Rome in 1990. He lives out the rest of his life in a vow of silence on the affair, He continues playing golf, and he dies in 2006, age 84, in Sun City, Arizona, with tons and tons of questions hanging over his involvement in Calvi's death and the Vatican's probable connections to the Mafia and P2. Writes the New York Times in Marcinkus' obituary, quote, Archbishop Marcinkus was indicted but never trialed in the banking scandal, which peaked in 1982, the stuff of international thrillers, the scandal would ultimately involve Machiavellian intrigue, mysterious death, and the loss of more than $1 billion. And I've actually researched tons of additional scandals in the Vatican for this show, which I'm going to turn into a bonus episode for our Patreon members this week. But that's not quite the end of this story. So you guys remember Pope John Paul I. He's the smiling Pope the guy whose 33-day rule ended when he died of a heart attack in his Vatican bed. Well, he was succeeded by Pope John Paul II, one of the most popular popes in modern history. There's far too many Ps in this. Who didn't exactly pursue the Vatican Bank's financial issues with the same gusto. And in October 2019, a guy called Antony Raimondi, Colombo crime family gangster and nephew of Lucky Luciano, claims that he, as part of a hit team, poisoned the Pope with cyanide. I love how the
2: assassination of the Pope, or one of the Popes, is just like, you know, something we throw in at the end of this episode.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, you you play with the big boys, you get spiked by a guy with a crappy beard that looks like Steven Seagal, who <laughs> brings out a book in his late age and... uh you know, we're not we're not entirely sure whether this is like legit. But he says that Marcinkus hired him, age twenty eight, to carry out the deed. Marcinkus, as Raymond D, spiked the Pope's tea with Valium before the hit team administered the deadly poison. I mean that is a huge, huge revelation. Yeah. <laughs> and he goes he says in his book, which I'm not even gonna say the title of because I bet it's shit, quote I stood in the hallway outside the Pope's quarters when the tea was served. I'd done a lot of things in my time, but I didn't want to be there in the room when they killed the Pope. I knew that would buy me a one-way ticket to hell. I mean, is this guy, Uh, I don't know. Like what the fuck? God can't (laughs) see past the door. I don't know. Like I don't even get it. Jesus Christ. Um, Raymondi claims that the Pope was killed for threatening to expose the Vatican Bank's shady financial investments at the top of which, of course, sits Marcinkus. Now, soon after, Raimondi says Cardinal's invited him back to the Vatican to whack John John Paul II, who's also considering outing the financial conspirators, but he refuses. I love this quote. No way, I said, he writes in his book. What are you going to do? Just keep killing popes? (laughs) (laughs) Raimondi says that Pope John Paul II ended up keeping quiet. And instead, Raymondi goes on a bender with the bishops. So he hasn't killed him. He goes on a party instead. And he says, quote, We stayed and partied for a week with cardinals wearing civilian clothes and lots of girls. If I had to live the rest of my life in Vatican City, it would have been okay with me. It was some setup. My cousins all drove Cadillacs. I'm in the wrong business, I thought. I should have become a cardinal.
2: Yeah. That's uh I mean, thanks for writing this up, dude. It's a uh, it's it's a Jesus tornado Christ. for sure. If you're still with us, like thank you guys for for supporting us as always. Definitely uh patreon.com slash new podcast will Sean will explain everything that happened here again in like a two
1: hour episode. <laughs>